what we do know from international stats is that yes uh, as a uh, sexual and gender minority the lgbtq community is often disproportionately impacted by suicide in various ways higher risk of suicide attempts and deaths as well uh, across all ages if i'm not wrong uh, maybe especially so for younger persons youth across the lgbtq rainbow spectrum we also know trans women for example gay and bisexual men are at higher risk of dying by suicide Hi everyone, welcome to episode 7 of Spectrum Podcast. In this episode, we discuss the topic of suicide and suicide prevention to mark World Suicide Prevention Day on 10th of September. So just a heads up to let you guys know, the following content might be triggering for some of you as we talk about these issues. Today we have Liao Yangfa, Executive Director of Uga Chaka, Singapore's first and most established community-based counselling and support agency for the LGBTQ community. Yangfa is also the editor of I Will Survive, a collection of personal gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender stories in Singapore. Welcome to the show, Yangfa. Hi, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for making your way down today. So, you know, I've been wanting to chat with you for a while now as you're one of the most recognized and notable figures in it's the, the shiny forehead. Yeah. It's Singapore's <laughs> LGBTQ plus community, right? So as someone who's been involved in the community and done a lot of activist work over the years, how have you seen the community grow and evolve since you first started work, doing this work? Yeah, it's interesting. You've jumped right into the big A word, the activists. I mean, uh-huh. I have a kind of a love-hate relationship with that work. Okay. First and foremost, really, I do see myself as a social worker because mm-hmm. uh, that's my, I suppose that's my profession. That's been my professional training. And of course, as professional social workers, social justice is a very important part of our work. A lot of people think, you know, social workers are do-gooders about welfare. Well, in the 21st century, in a developed country like Singapore, it's not just about social welfare. It's definitely about social justice. I mean, that is the core of social work. And of course, uh, right now working in the LGBTQ community, the idea of social justice is especially important, certainly in Singapore. Um, looking back on, well, I started my full proper first job in 1999 so yes it has been 20 years uh, and i'm working professionally in social services around the same time I was also volunteering uh, with action for aids as well so i do have that i suppose a mix of professional as well as volunteer experience in mainstream social services as well as in the lgbtq community your question about observation over the past uh, two decades well i think it's it's always very encouraging to see people come out, come up and come together to do things. Um, in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, where we were still doing the whole dial-up modems and all that, people were getting organized with social media and uh, Facebook and everything. And in later, people are doing that. So people always do that. It's always so nice to see people organizing themselves online, and physical events, you know, in people's living rooms. I mean, that's how Ugichaga started. And that's always something I've, I've been very impressed by. I mean, I'm, I'm part of this community and I'm so proud of it, how, how people organize, we organize ourselves in whatever shape or form and size to, to do things, to deliver services, to, you know, provide support for each other. And 
I know in our community, you have spoken with some of the fellow community members and leaders as well, you know, starting groups uh, to, to do things for ourselves. I think a lot of that is against the backdrop of uh, how well this, our community is so diverse, there's so many needs. At the same time, there's so much talent as well. So people do that. And yes, as a minority, marginalized community, all our needs are not being met by the mainstream community. So let's get together and do that for ourselves. That's mm. partly how Ubichaga came about. That's probably how all of the other LGBTQ groups in our community have come about as well. Mm. Can you expound on social justice? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by, and the distinction of the word justice, what do you mean by justice? Mm, social justice, you know, the idea that we don't just... Sometimes people get the idea of welfare and justice, certainly in the social profession. Uh, the idea of social welfare gets conflated with social justice. Well, I mean, let me give an example. Social welfare is, you know, you see poor people, let's give them food, let's give them, uh, uh, let's put, give them financial assistance, and then, you know, let's, oh, oh let's uh, improve their living conditions by moving them from the kampongs into um, HDB flats. That's kind of social welfare. I mean, Singapore did that really well. Uh, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know. Yet social justice is something that's a bit more than that. It's about, hang on a minute, thinking that uh, there's some structural issues here. Why are people working so hard and still poor, for example? Why are people doing uh, honest uh, things, uh, working, raising their families, and still finding it difficult to, to, to feed their family? Working families who still need to you know, go on uh, financial assistance and still hold on three jobs and still not be eligible for this and that. So we need to think about that. Why is that happening? So that's what just where social justice needs to come in. And that really is where social workers like myself and many others, not just in Singapore, but all over the world as well, really need to look at. Again, big fan of um, Joe Yuan's book. This is what uh, inequality looks like. That's a classic example that expounds on you know, how Singapore has done such a good job on social welfare. But maybe we are not doing that well in terms of social justice as well. It's not just, to be fair, it's not just the purview of social workers as well, academics, researchers, all of us, politicians, policymakers, we need to care about social justice. Mm. Okay. So how do you feel about how far Singapore has come? Mm. Um, of course, there are two camps, you know, one side will feel like, okay, we've come very far and mm -hmm. we should count our blessings and um, and then there's the other camp as we've, we've not changed or progressed fast enough and there's still a lot more to be done. So in your opinion, what else do you think needs to be done? Mm, well, speaking about camp, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I like the way you, you put it that way, I mean, very deliberately putting it as a binary um, I'm, I'm going to just very sneakily say, well, it's convenient to put it as a binary. Are we doing it very well? Or have we done it well? Have we not? I think in the reality is we're probably somewhere in the middle. It's very dynamic kind of, you know, there's so many things we do so well here in Singapore over mm -hmm. the past, what, 55 years. And yet there's still so many things we still need to do better, especially in the idea that this is the 21st century. Singapore is one of the richest countries in the world and the most developed and all that. And yet there's still things that we still can't get right, you know. I mean, we don't have to look far. The way we treat our migrant workers, for example, our foreign domestic workers, I mean, that leaves a lot to be desired. You know, it's kind of things like that. Very, what's the word for it? Very mixed bag of, of, of things that, that we do well and we don't do well. So, yeah. Uh, specifically for the LGBTQ community, I mean, certainly, you know, 377A, the legislation is one great classic example. I mean, many people who, come to Singapore, who visit, who live and relocate here, they're often surprised that we have that 
archaic piece of legislation that as you know as a developed rich country we still criminalize consensual gay sex it actually shocks people mm. Mm. so of course you know the government's uh, stand on that is that society is not ready for it um but clearly we've seen through ping dot mm-hmm. and how it's grown over the last 10 years that so the voices from society are showing it showing up and mm. and speaking out that they are ready and they want to yep. see change right mm-hmm. so what do you make of that argument well just think of a cliche the only way is up you know we we can't stay like this for another 10 years there needs to be a bit of a shift remove i know a lot of um observers people in the community talk about how the we feel so frustrated, you know, it's been 10 years of Ping Dot and still, you know, we're nowhere near where we should be. Well, when you think about it, 10 years is not a long time when it comes to social history or history of social movements. I would, okay, maybe this is me urging people to, yes, recognize it is frustrating and, and at the same time have patience as well to keep chipping away, you know, that's another kind of cliche image of, chip 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 away and don't think that you are the only one doing it whatever we are doing today tomorrow next week next decade when we keep chipping away it's also building on what people before us 5 10 50 years ago had been chipping away we continue chipping after we are gone after we have passed on when we are ground to dust other people will come and they will continue chipping as well. So we keep doing that. It doesn't stop in any single generation. Right. So do you think that if we do repeal 377A, mm. will it really be make a big difference in changing the narrative? I've always believed, you know, repealing 377A will only be the beginning. I mean, I'm mindful that we're having this conversation now and uh, the, the three cases are going to appeal uh, the uh, we don't know when that will take place, maybe in the next, uh, hopefully next few months or next year or so. So we can't really talk too much about the details of the case, but just talk about the legislation or the movement to repeal it. I always believe that repealing 377A, decriminalization, it's only the beginning. When you think about it, it's taking us from minus one to zero. Mm. Right? Okay. Because we went from criminal to decriminalized. And then the rest of the work begins. Right. You know, it doesn't, it shouldn't stop with decriminalization. Mm-hmm. That, it, that's really the first step, actually. Yeah, it takes us to the starting line right, <laughs> when you think right. about it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, I find it so interesting that, yes, we are world-class in so many ways, right, Singapore. But with regards to this issue, we are, it is a very archaic law. Mm-hmm. We can agree on that. Yeah. And even compared to our regional neighbours, mm-hmm. you know, where they have same-sex unions approved, legislated and all that, and where we are with regards to that is actually really behind. So are those uniquely Singapore things, <laughs> la, right? I mean, yeah, That's I mean, one way to put it. So yes. Branding-wise, we are on brand. La. We're wow. uniquely Singapore. No, yeah. we are rich. We are so developed and all that supposedly economically advanced and yet socially you know we have things like that and again when i uh, share with my uh, international colleagues you know that it's only this year you know first january 2020 it's only this year that singapore repealed 309 that we decriminalize suicide attempts Mm. people are shocked it's like really it's only now that we have made suicide attempts uh, not uh, illegal so people are quite surprised. So it's taken us yeah, this long to repeal 309. Mm. It's only now that we've decriminalized suicide attempts. Right. So 
Well, so we'll see. We continue chipping away, whether it's years mm. or decades, and we must not stop. Mm. Okay, so we acknowledge, we can acknowledge that there has been progress in terms of equality and, well, let's not talk about rights yet, but in terms of the conversation. Sorry, what's this, what's this rights <laughs> word? You, <laughs> yeah, so unfamiliar. Right? <laughs> how, how do you spell? <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, so, okay, clearly we still have some way to yeah. go, a long way to go actually, yeah. right? If we're just coming up from minus one to zero. So you mentioned about suicide rate, suicide so, for example, the issue of suicide rates amongst LGBTQ plus individuals, youth in particular, tends to be higher. To, to be fair, I mean, uh, prior to working at Ugi Chaga, I was working for National Suicide Prevention Agency, SOS, and very grateful for the professional uh, training I received there in you know, suicide prevention, suicide intervention. And also, you know, one of the things I've learned is that you know, statistics can be so powerful and useful Having said that, unfortunately in Singapore, we actually don't capture statistics specifically on LGBTQ suicide. Um, what we do know from international stats is that, yes, uh, as a uh, sexual and gender minority, the LGBTQ community is often disproportionately impacted by suicide in various ways. Higher risk of suicide attempts and deaths as well uh, across all ages, if I'm not wrong, uh, maybe especially so for younger persons, youth, Across the LGBTQ rainbow spectrum, we also know trans women, for example, gay and bisexual men, are at higher risk of dying by suicide. Mm. Queer women, lesbian and bisexual women are at higher risk of attempting suicide, mm. likewise for trans men. And so, so there's a certain okay. kind of a gender and orientation spectrum to it. Of course, various factors right. impacting that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So this disproportionate number, what mm. do you attribute it to? What kind of factors or what kind of struggles yeah. perhaps? Uh, there's been some explanations. I mean, all of it probably will kind of make sense uh, when we talk about it within our community, the idea of uh, minority stress uh, impacting uh, how we see ourselves, sense of identity, sense of shame, we internalize homophobia, uh, transphobia, biphobia and all that. And of course, that impacts our mental health. And also the idea of um, hostility and rejection, uh, not just from families, also from our social environments and for people who come from particular communities, whether it's ethnic communities, faith communities, the sense of rejection from those communities as well, and also lack of supportive professional and community resources. So all of these kind of uh, things kind of add up and, and uh, contribute to you know higher risk of uh, uh, suicide attempts and deaths in the LGBTQ community. And also when we talk about suicide, it's not just about the preventing the death. It's also the when somebody has attempted suicide, when somebody has died by suicide, the people who are impacted, uh, what, what we call the, the ripple effect. You know, imagine, and again, this is backed by studies overseas. When one person attempts suicide, you can imagine the people around them are affected whether directly or indirectly, it could be friends, family members, the friend who found the person who has attempted suicide, or uh, even uh, the, the caregivers or, or the people who have kind of survived through the second or third attempt. And then when somebody dies by suicide, the, those of us who are left behind. Mm. And that's kind of, a, it has an impact on the community, especially for a small community like ours, where we kind of, you know, where word of mouth, support networks, informal support networks are so important and sadly suicide suicide on its own we know it's not a it's not a disease it's not a it's not an illness it's a behavior and unfortunately it's a behavior that can be learned. 
Now, as someone who identifies as trans male, it's been challenging to find a high-quality men's barber and grooming salon that's as inclusive and welcoming as Sultans of Shave. For this reason, Sultans of Shave has become my quintessential barbering destination. It revolutionizes one of the oldest trades with its contemporary style as a modern-day gentleman's barber offering impeccable shaves, fabulous fades and deluxe cuts. And I just love the passion and precision its barbers wield. It's become my personal sanctuary because I'm all about the art of grooming. And if you'd like to also get it suave at Sultans of Shave, you can save $5 off your first appointment when you book online with my code JAMIE5. And you'll be in good hands, I promise. So we're here talking about suicide because World Suicide Prevention Day is coming up on September 10th. And I feel it's really something that we need to have more conversations about so that we can remove the stigma around it, which prevents people from getting the help that they need. So Yangfa, what are your thoughts on this? Absolutely. I mean, World Suicide Prevention Day, well, along with the World Mental Day, actually, so 10 September, 10 October, it is something that not just we in the LGBTQ community, I mean, all over the world, everyone something it's something that should that we should care about because uh, one of the taglines i know that the campaigns use is suicide prevention is everybody's business is back to the idea of you know even as a social worker as as somebody who works in the, the helping profession it touches me personally and professionally certainly within the lgbtq plus community as well suicide does impact me uh, in my life and when you think about it suicide prevention is something that doesn't require pro- professional training to be able to do suicide prevention is everybody's business there are ways for all of us to, to prevent suicide in our lgbtq community for example we know that we are disproportionately impacted as a minority community uh, within uh, across the rainbow spectrum we know that uh, gay bisexual men uh, transgender women are at higher rates of dying by suicide compared to um, non-LGBTQ men in the mainstream community and of course um, lesbian, queer, bisexual women and trans men are at high risk of attempting suicide as well compared to other people. So those are disturbing stats. I mean we don't have a lot of local data but if we were to look at international data done, uh, studies done on uh, LGBTQ communities elsewhere, I think we can kind of see that that's kind of likely to happen here as well and also maybe anecdotally in our work in Ugachaga when we engage with community partners as well that's sadly also what we hear so it's interesting that you say that it's our responsibility and we can do something about it Um, perhaps you can share what are the warning signs that we can look out for yeah certainly Uh, and this is where we actually do have some uh, local data thanks to uh, SOS uh, Samaritans of Singapore and some of the work they've done with uh, other community partners as well. Um, so right, three groups of very classic warning signs. One is um, verbal threats. And by verbal, uh, could be through talking or it could be expressions on text as well, certainly on social media. When somebody is talking about suicide, when somebody is expressing very intense pain, that is a warning sign. And maybe just to frame the idea of warning sign, think of warning signs as a cry for help because somebody needs help, think of warning signs as an invitation for help. It's like, I'm sending you a warning sign. I need help. 
I'm sending you a warning sign. I'm inviting you to see that I need help. So the first uh, group of, of warning signs will be uh, verbal th uh, threats or expressions. Uh, a second kind of a group of um, warning signs will be uh, what we call a very intense and unusual kind of uh, behaviors and changes in mood. Behaviors sometimes can be observable if you know that person well enough. But changes in mood, sometimes they are so intense that sometimes when we see it, we kind of are, are struck by it. And the very classic um, intense emotional changes would be um, that helplessness, hopelessness, and worthlessness. So helplessness, I mean, some of us may be familiar when we hear or see helplessness. It might seem or might sound something like, no, I can't do this, I can't do that. And then the, the emotions associated with this, with that. Hopelessness is when there's a, the lack of a sense of future. Is that I can't see beyond tomorrow. Uh, I, I'm not going to be here next Christmas or Chinese New Year or Hari Raya. I'm not going to be around. The sense of you know, that there's no tomorrow, there's no future. So that's hopelessness. And the third one is worthlessness or uselessness. Another word for that feeling is the sense of failure. You know, I can't do this, I can't do that. People also say I can't do this. I'm not worth anything. So these three very painful, very difficult, very intense emotions. Um, if we sense that somebody we know is experiencing one, two, or all three of those emotions, that usually is another warning sign. So that's uh, the second group of our warning signs. The first one was verbal threats and expressions. Second one is um, changes and, uh, and intensity of emotions and behaviors. The third group, a bit more difficult for, for many of us to observe, especially if it's not somebody we live with. So the third group of um, uh, warning signs is um, pre-suicide planning. So for example, and this is where it may get a bit distressing for some people to, to hear. For example, um, when somebody's planning for the particular method of suicide, maybe they're buying things or they're checking out a place or they're writing suicide notes, they're saving a draft on their phone, on their um, social media account. So making preparations. Again, this last group is particularly difficult because it's often discovered only on hindsight. So, I mean, I will urge, and there's lots of information, especially um, uh, on the SOS website or even uh, wherever you are, just, just Google suicide warning signs. Google actually has done a really good job of um, picking up some of these keywords and directing uh, you to kind of your local suicide prevention resources. Do a quick search for suicide warning signs and you should be directed to uh, relevant help resources. Mm -hmm. And it's back to, you don't have to be a professionally trained social worker or counsellor to be able to, to notice these warning signs. In fact, what we say is friends and family members, colleagues, um, classmates, because of the nature of your contact, with somebody who may be at risk of suicide, you're in a better position to be kind of the eyes and ears to pick all this up. Mm. Mm. You mentioned about um, feelings of hopelessness, worthlessness mm. and all. I mean, as human beings, we all kind of like experience these emotions mm. from time to time, sure. especially like after a major setback, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. So, okay, at, in terms of like wanting to support our loved ones, how do we know when it is that detrimental or that mm. close for them to going over the edge? Yep. Or is it just, okay, they're just facing a setback? Mm. So, so, I mean, yeah, I'll say right about, it's about uh, intensity and context as well. So uh, we, we should, uh, or maybe it is, it's appropriate to start worrying where if you notice intensity has escalated very, very quickly and maybe uh, in a very unusual way. Unusual not for us, the observer or the, 
or the helper, but unusual for that person who's in distress. So, you know, maybe somebody is usually, you know, of a quite a low mood and often feels uh, down for a couple of days. And then you know that it's usual for them to pick themselves up after a couple of days. Then that's usual for them. What may be unusual for them will be, you know, they go into a low mood and it gets deeper and more intense over days and weeks. So that's unusual for them. That's where we should perk up and see that as a warning sign. And then so observing the warning sign is one thing. And then put it in the context of your relationship with them. One of the things you talk about that's especially important uh, with suicide prevention is after you have noticed possible warning signs, to approach and kind of to find out a bit more, to, to make that, to approach and make that connection. So one of the ways to, to find out is based on your relationship with the person, ask. Ask if they are actually feeling suicidal. Again, many people are surprised that, you know, that we can do that or that mm. we should do that because it's such a, such it, a weird it thing. It sounds very confrontational. Absolutely yeah. confrontational. And yet, remember that if you have an existing relationship with a person, as a partner, relative, friend, colleague, that relationship can soften the, the bluntness of that direct question. And the question that, you know, uh, we, we would say would be appropriate to ask is, you know, with a bit of a preamble to it, maybe something like, you know, I noticed you've been feeling a bit down the past couple of days and you don't seem your usual self, you know. Last year when you had the big setback, compared to this year, this year I'm more worried about you, sort of a bit of a preamble context. And then go for the very direct question, I'm really worried, are you feeling suicidal now? So it's a very direct question, of course, with the appropriate tone as well. And you'll be surprised at the kind of responses that we can get. Um, of course, I've used this uh, in my work. I've used it in my personal life as well. I've even asked family members. And again, you'll be surprised at what your rapport and your relationship with uh, that person can do to, to help you um, ease the, the, the effect of the question. Because it's such a powerful question. Mm. Back to the idea of suicide, such a, a taboo. Yes, it's very taboo. Yeah. Exactly. So by asking that question, you're actually giving the suicidal person permission to talk about it. Mm. So in your experience, when you actually ask those questions, mm. what kind of response have you usually mm. gotten? I ask it, I mean, in my current job, or certainly in previous roles as well, asking it gets all sorts of responses. Uh, some people may worry, you know, by asking it, won't you be planting the idea in mm. their head? Well, if somebody is not suicidal, they will tell you. They will say, no, I'm not suicidal. Or they might turn around and say, hey, don't be silly. Lah. I'm not suicidal. So that's okay. Mm -hmm. At least you know they are not suicidal. Right. What if the person is in denial? Mm -hmm. And again, this is where your relationship with them can kind of like uh, hopefully pick up the, the cues as well. What they are saying is that kind of congruent with uh, how, how, what you're picking up, your sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a face-to-face -face setting, it could be on the phone, or it could be, you know, uh, in written communication as well. Um, and I've asked this question in various um, forms, in person, over the phone, in, in, in written communication. If somebody is feeling suicidal and they hear you ask that question, they're also hearing your concern for them. They're also hearing that you are wanting to reach out and give them permission to talk about it. So some possible responses might be silence or if you're able to see the body language, maybe a bit of a fidgeting, a bit of a nudge, a bit of a nod. And if they trust you enough 
to go further, it will be an outright yes. And the feelings often associated with that will be, I'm relieved to be able to talk to you about it because, you know, I don't know where to start to talk about my suicidal feelings. I, I've had, you know, people say to, to me in, in various settings, oh, they're relieved, they, they thank me for asking them, uh, they, they, they thank me. They thank me for having the opportunity to talk about it. They sometimes even acknowledge that, you know, they were trying so hard to cover it up and yet I picked it up. So they thank me for noticing it. Mm. So the warning signs. And really it's down to that relationship, whether it's a relationship between a professional or a client or as a friend or as a colleague as well. Mm. And it's not easy. Talking about suicide, it's not easy for the person who's suicidal. It's also not easy for the rest of us who, who may, may, may fumble and you know what? Professionals fumble too. Mm. What's important is that connection that we have. Right. You know, having said that, right, um, I think it's a common perception or something that I've read or heard that, you know, they say the ones who are really going to do it mm-hmm. won't tell you. Mm-hmm. They won't leave signs. They won't leave clues kind of thing. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? I'm a bit um, careful about that kind of, a, I would call it almost like a myth. Because what we do know of um, suicidal behavior and back to the idea that suicide is a behavior, suicidal behavior very often or rather is rarely impulsive. Suicide as, an, as a behavior, as an act, is rarely impulsive. In that, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's the emotional aspect to it, there's the so-called practical planning aspect of it. And of course, there's the, the, the reasons, the, the intentions behind the suicide. When we talk about youth suicide, I know youth suicide is something that's often so um, puzzling and difficult and painful for us as adults to see, you know. We think of why why does a young person want to kill themselves, you know. They have so much ahead of them. And then sometimes we hear of a young person dying by suicide. We are often thinking, hang on, we didn't know, we didn't know, you know. Well, actually, what we do know is that for even for a young person who kills himself, there's also the escalation process, just that, that the gradient of the escalation process is a lot steeper between the decision to want to do it and the act. There's still a process, just it's a lot quicker. So, and along the way, again, it's back to, you know, whether we've had the opportunity to see the warning signs, whether... You know, and that often is very difficult for those of us who are left behind when somebody has died by suicide. Personally, I can share that I have lost people I know uh, in my professional capacity, in my personal capacity, I've lost people I know through suicide. And the power of hindsight is, you no, know, why didn't I see that? Or I saw that I didn't do anything about it. That is also very difficult. So that's why it's also very important to maybe learn from that and also Hopefully, other people can also learn from uh, our lessons of um, what, we, what we could do to, to prevent suicide. As we all know, there's so much going on in the world today, and we're all dealing with a lot of challenges just trying to get through this pandemic. So I'd like to take a moment to share with you about Safe Space, an organization that connects users with counselors, including LGBT-friendly counselors, for online and offline counseling sessions. So if you're feeling stressed, burnt out, or having relationship or marriage problems, and you need to talk to someone for help, don't hesitate to reach out to their professional therapists 
at safespace.sg to book a counseling session and improve your mental well-being today. Mm, okay. How else can we better support our loved ones? Mm-hmm. Um, well, of course, self-care is very important, even as we're supporting others. As we're supporting other people, you know, I think it, it's just important to not not just see suicide as as a singular thing. Certainly, it's, it's it can be triggering. It can be difficult. It could be the combination of you know, a lot of stresses, and maybe there's also a lot more we can do before we or our loved ones kind of get there. Um, that the relationship I talk about maintaining a relationship, noticing changes in the relationship, uh, noticing if you know there are things that have um, that are working and things that are not. Um, like I mentioned about unusual behaviors, unusual mood changes. Some of it could be, you know, related to specific incident incidents. Sometimes it could be maybe a result of uh, environmental things. You know, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, and there's a recession coming on. So many of us are under so much stress. When you think about it, the feeling of stress actually is now considered normal. At the same time, there's also so many of us who are struggling with coping that idea of stress is normal, maybe because our resources are depleted. So maybe uh, part of looking out for our um, nerve plants is also maybe building up those resources, whether it's emotional resources, relational resources, um, mental health resources. Resources is not just about money and jobs, this is about all those other things mm-hmm. that, that we have. And of course, even as we're doing that, we also definitely must, must, must look after ourselves Mm. as well. Otherwise, our resources get depleted too. Absolutely. Mm. Speaking of the stressful times that we're living in, (laughs) have you seen an uptick in terms of people coming to Ugachaga for mental health issues, for counselling, that sort of thing? We have in Ugachaga. when the circuit breakers started in April, we had to uh, we weren't able to see clients in the office, so we had to uh, temporarily suspend that service. So we just focused our resources on our online uh, counseling, so WhatsApp and email. So we saw a dip in April, but then April, May, June, July, that was a progressive monthly 20 to 30% increase. Um, at this point now in September, we've reached a level that's way above pre-COVID. Uh, uh, we reach a service level that's uh, higher than pre-COVID. Mm. So despite the dip in April, the in- increase from April to now has... yeah. How much higher would it be? Uh, we're looking at 20-30% increase every month for the past okay. two three months. And right. we've sustained an increase. It hasn't gone back down to below pre-COVID mm. levels. Mm. So that's, again, plus an indication of um, how... Not just our community, but everyone is feeling that strain. Um, my 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 peers and colleagues working in other agencies, social workers and family service centers, they're reporting that as well. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly. Yeah, I find it interesting that you refer to suicide as a behavior mm-hmm. rather than an act. I think, I think most of us will think about suicide as an act. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the relationship between? suicide and depression and mental health Mm. could it be that a person has suicidal thoughts and tendencies but not suffering from depression that that sort of thing Mm -hmm. yeah jamie thanks thanks for for popping that up because you know sometimes again depending on experiences or you know um, who we interact with sometimes there's a a conflation between suicide and mental illness um uh, 
I, I like to think that what we do know, certainly what I've seen in my professional practice is that, uh, yes, it's, um, I kind of visualize it as a Venn diagram. So suicide and mental illness can overlap. So yes, some people who have mental illnesses can also be feeling suicidal. So in that case, the suicide is a symptom of uh, the mental illness. And there's some specific um, mental, mental illnesses that have um, uh, suicide as a symptom. The correlation is a bit higher. So that's uh, one group. And then, of course, we do know many, many, many people who feel suicidal. Again, notice I use the word feel, the feeling of a suicide. Uh, they may attempt suicide. They may self-harm. And yet, it's not a result of mental illness. It is for, for various reasons. It could be a way of coping. It could be a way of trying to seek help and support for themselves. And again, this is what I learned from um, many of my clients as well. Perhaps because in their lives, they have tried other ways to seek help. They've tried other ways to get attention from people which hasn't really worked. So they have decided or they've learned that self-harm and suicide is one way that help can come to them. So that's one example of another group. And of course, we also know many people who have mental health issues or mental illnesses who are not suicidal. So that's what I mean by there's an overlap, but then it's not a what do you call it? It's not a true correlation. Mm. Yeah. Okay. What would you say are like the most common misconceptions around suicide? Mm. Uh, I think we kind of alluded to that earlier. A very common misconception is no, all suicides happen without warning. Not true. Mm. Not true. Like what we mentioned about warning signs. It is, again, sometimes it's, it's particularly difficult for, for us to look back on hindsight with the benefit of hindsight and, and say thing, I wish we had seen those warning signs. So that's a, a common myth. Another myth, again, speaking of um, describing suicides of behavior is um, sometimes, again, sadly, we see multi, multi-generational suicides in the family, whether it's grandparents, parents, and in the current generation as well. And that's, that's not because suicide is inherited. I mean, as far as we know, science has not found a suicide gene. Um, that there's no genetic element to suicide. If anything, if suicide happens in the family over generations, it might be because, again, it's back to how it's been learned. Learned mm-hmm. as a way of um, coping with pain, mm-hmm. coping with shame, uh, coping with uh, distress, with, with problems. And again, back to our LGBTQ community, I think that's also something I... I think uh, we would worry about, especially since the small, tight-knit community, sometimes not not unusually, we do see suicidal behavior as learned amongst peers as well. Mm. It's a way of coping with distress, right. coping with pain, uh, suicide and self-harm. Mm. So, so you're saying like, for example, if within a group of friends, yes. if one person has committed suicide mm. and someone else in that group... Yes is going through something very intense, mm-hmm. they might be more likely to also choose the same way out of Absolutely. that pain. Absolutely. Yeah. And I notice you use the word choose because again, it's a behavior, it's an act, it's a choice of that as a, a way to deal with it. And again, I appreciate how, as we are talking about this, we are talking about it in a, in a descriptive way, which actually is appropriate and useful when we are talking about suicide. We are describing it mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe in some other settings where it's talked about in very value-laden, judgmental mm. ways, which is not helpful mm. because that doesn't promote uh, help mm. and support. 
back to the idea of um, how suicide impacts survivors. Um, I use the word survivors to describe those of us who are left behind when somebody has died by suicide. It can happen to a, in a family. Um, it can happen with friends and close-knit groups as well. Again, research has shown that suicide survivors are at higher risk of suicide themselves. Oh, so wow. say the partner, the child, the close friend, the best friend of somebody who has died by suicide by virtue of that relationship, by virtue of having experienced a close one's um, suicide death, they themselves are at increased risk of mm. suicide. And sometimes it could be through the same method or just generally speaking, suicide as a behavior. Right. So that is, that is very real. So that's where support... It's very scary as well. It is. Yeah. yeah. And again, back to our marginalized minority community where there's a lot of support. So if you call it, in a way, a community... It's also a family, family of choice, family of creation. So that support that we have within our queer communities, that's important. And when we lose a member through suicide, it's painful for everyone. Yeah. So I guess one takeaway from that also is that if someone commits suicide, mm -hmm. the rest of us should be on watch for the person close to them as yes. well because yeah. they're quite like they're yeah. not quite likely, but they might be likely yeah. to. Or more and like the feelings of pain and shame and intensity. And again, I deliberately use the word shame, especially for our community. Um, of course, um, for, for many of us, uh, the, uh, the act of suicide or death by suicide still carries a certain element of uh, shame and stigma. So that's one level. And then for many LGBTQ persons, there's another additional element of, you know, of shame of their identity, of their relationships and all that. So when you think about it, it's at least two layers of shame mm. That, mm. that the survivor has to deal with. Mm. Okay. This is very heavy stuff. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important to have this conversation. I genuinely feel that way. And, and, and yet, you know, the fact that, Jamie, you're giving me permission here to talk about that, I think that's also important. And in a way, we are having a conversation about suicide not just for the sake of it we're doing it because we want to raise awareness about the issue mm -hmm. uh, you very kindly asked me to talk about warning signs and that's something that's important it's helpful information I mean, we talked about how uh, if appropriate you know ask about suicide um, the language is appropriate the tone also needs to be appropriate as well and also we don't just stop there it's about connecting people to help you mm -hmm. know one of the things i, I remember sharing uh, where i used to run uh, suicide um intervention workshops is, you know, that helping somebody doesn't mean we're doing everything for them. Sometimes helping somebody can also take the form of connecting them to help. So that's also a way of helping. Mm. Helping somebody doesn't mean we have to solve all their problems. Yeah. Helping somebody doesn't mean we have to take away all their pain. Mm -hmm. Helping can take the form of, here, let me go with you to see the counsellor. Here, let me sit with you while you call the hotline. Here, let me go and Google and find some websites for you. That can be helping too. Mm. Yeah, there's one area though that we didn't really touch on. Mm. Um, when we were talking about the reasons for increased numbers of suicide mm. amongst LGBTQ youth mm. especially, mm. Um, you didn't mention about bullying, I think. Okay. Yeah, so I'm yeah. going to ask you, yes. in terms of the occurrence of bullying, how much of a factor does it play? 
can I mean bullying is is maybe one of a, a range of a group of of uh, maybe factors. I mean, in Singapore again, we don't have that much data on the LGBTQ suicides or LGBTQ bullying. Or we know it happens in Singapore, just that we don't have enough uh, stats on it. But what we do know from international data is that um, um hostile environments, homophobic, biphobic, transphobic environments, especially in uh, in schools or in communities. Uh, in faith communities as well, the idea of discrimination, bullying, and rejection can increase can increase suicide risk. So, for example, I think I remember um, coming across one particular study about specifically for trans and gender diverse youth. So, I think they compared when a trans person has been rejected by their family members compared to a trans a trans youth who has been accepted by their a family member. The suicide risk is just very stark. The, the difference in the suicide risk is stark. Mm. Um, uh, trans people who have been rejected by their families, suicide risk through the roof. When they've been accepted by their family, mm. uh, mental outcomes are much more positive, suicide risk much lower. I mean, when we sit here and talk about it, it's so intuitive, but then it takes a study to kind of mm. show that. Right? So there was an actual study on that yes. in Singapore? Not in Singapore. Oh, okay. uh, it might right. have been Canada or US. Mm. Uh, I can't remember now, but that was you know quite stark. Mm-hmm. It was a study on uh, trans youth and family acceptance, basically. Wow. And again, since we talk about uh, rejection acceptance, we can take what, go one step further. Other studies have shown experience of conversion trauma. There have now been links established between experiences of conversion trauma and suicide risk. Mm. Not surprisingly, LGBTQ persons, youth and young adults who have been subjected to conversion trauma are at higher risk of attempting suicide, mm-hmm. of dying by suicide. Mm. And you may have noticed I deliberately use the term conversion trauma. Uh, I do not call it therapy mm-hmm. because it's not therapeutic. Mm. It's been you know debunked as pseudoscience. Is, is conversion trauma, mm-hmm. like gay conversion trauma, trauma? Practice in Singapore. Yes, it is. Okay. Um, I know some people have problems describing it, defining it. Well, again, I think a lot of us think that conversion trauma is sitting in an electric chair or you know stuff poking the heads and all that. Yes, that used to happen. Uh, probably still happens in some parts of the world. I don't think it happens that much here in Singapore anymore. The electric chair, uh, electroshock therapy for conversion trauma. However, there are so many other ways to practice this. Uh, for example, using a lot of guilt tripping and shaming and other forms of physical violence. It doesn't have to be electroshock therapy. It can be other forms. Uh, we, we have heard of some very distressing um, uh, approaches in Singapore. That is still being practiced today. Yes, wow. here in Singapore. And, you know, when you think about it, if you want to go to see a counsellor and want to you know, um, talk about certain issues, the last thing you want is to leave the counselling room feeling worse. Mm. And we do know of some, I mean, they call themselves professionals. I don't think they are. And we hear this from some of the clients we worked with. They experience feeling shame. They experience feeling more shame and more guilt as a result of the counselling. Mm. That's not what counselling should be. Counselling, mm-hmm. therapy should not make you feel more shame or more guilt. And yet we know some of these practitioners do that. Mm. It's back to that pseudo-scientific approach of wanting to induce more shame and more guilt in the hope that you will turn straight, mm-hmm. that you will stop being LGBTQ. Right. 
it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, but having said that, right, there are stories of people who have gone through some sort of quote-unquote therapies mm-hmm. um, and become straight after that mm-hmm. and then have families and all that. Mm-hmm. So could it be possible that in certain instances it may work? Or what do you think is going on with that? Again, it, it's, it's hard to say. Well, again, I like to honour certainly uh, those experiences that they have. I mean, not knowing them uh, personally or not having seen them as, as a professional, I won't know what their full story is. If anything, if truly that is their experience and they are comfortable to stop being queer, then I would also uh, want to know what kind of additional support they have after they've gone through these um, so-called traumatic experiences. Because what we do know is for many people who go through these uh, approaches, the effects of the trauma are lifelong. So uh, we know of young people who have gone through it as teenagers in adulthood when they enter into relationships. Some of those traumatic flashbacks come back. Mm. So for um, people who have gone through those um, practices and they are able to so-called stop being LGBT, I would really want to know yeah, um, the long-term effects that they have and long-term support, if any, that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, if you had a chance to speak to parents who mm-hmm. are contemplating sending their children for such quote-unquote therapy, yeah. what would you like to say to them? I'm not a parent. I'm a proud uncle. And yet, I think I like to think that as a parent, you want what's best for your child. I think that's a safe enough assumption. Yeah. What we do know is conversion trauma is not the best thing for your child. It is traumatic. It's not right for your child and it's not right for you. Okay. I understand you have like a workshop coming up on suicide prevention. Could that's you right. tell us more so, about it and why people should sign up? So 10th September is World Suicide Prevention Day. Um, what, what Uge Chaga has been doing for the past couple of months, actually, we've been running a series of uh, workshops. So the first one was 25th July. Then we had another one on 10th August. And then two more coming up, 10th September, 10th October. So the one on 10th September is, we call it, let's talk about LGBTQ plus suicide prevention. And we're going to be running a two-hour online workshop on LGBTQ suicide prevention. Um, Sign up if you want to learn some kind of a very, hopefully, helpful tips on suicide prevention and what to do. If you um, are concerned about your loved ones having suicidal thoughts, we'll be hopefully doing it in an informative, useful way. We had some really positive feedback from the previous run. Hopefully, we'll do that again on 10 September. And um, just check out our uh, usual socials, um, Instagram, Facebook, and then there's a link that takes you to PTIX. And then it's free. It's a free... Um, online workshop and kindly supported by the Canadian High Commission in Singapore. Cool. Who should go for the workshop? People who are contemplating or perhaps parents, teachers? Um, who's your target audience? Anyone. I mean, because of the way we, we, we conduct the session, uh, anyone who is at least 16 years old and above, um, it probably wouldn't make sense to attend if you're already professionally trained as a social worker or mental health worker because this is really meant for the community, the lay person, so to speak. Um, whether it's somebody um, who is maybe finding 
hard to, to deal with um, things right now. Maybe you can pick up some tips for yourself. Um, maybe a concerned family member or a concerned friend, or even we just want to know how to support the LGBTQ community, whether or not you are um, identify as an LGBTQ person or whether you're just uh, wanting to be an ally, come join us. And because it's an online session, there's no limit on how many people can join us. And it's free. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Yangfa. That was um, cool. Um, so you're also the ambassador, right, for the um, hashtag How Are You campaign by the Samaritans of Singapore. One of 55, apparently, ah, I'm told, okay. because they, they chose 55 ambassadors because uh-huh. it's SG55, yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so could you tell us more about the campaign and what um, what it entails? Sure. Uh, so every year, uh, SOS, they kind of a, a lead um, a suicide prevention campaign as part of Suicide Prevention Month in, in September. So this year's campaign is How Are You? Hashtag How Are You? The idea is to kind of lower the barriers to seeking help. And again, it's not just about, you know, that we need to seek help with professionals for many of us in the community. And I can say this, especially with men. Um, It's sometimes a sense of, I don't know, maybe pride or or shame or just, you know, um, socialization, toxic masculinity, all those nasty things about seeking help from professionals. So this campaign, hashtag how are you, it's about the rest of us out there maybe being a bit more alert and being more forthcoming in, in offering help and support, just checking out on people. If you notice anything unusual, it doesn't even have to be a suicide warning sign. If you're just concerned about somebody, just just reach out, uh, just check on them. How are you? And let that be the start of a conversation. Um, actually, part of the SOS campaign this year is also about focusing on the difficulties men have in accessing help and for themselves. Um, for, for It's difficult for us to talk about suicide, I think some studies have shown it's especially difficult for men to talk about suicide within the context of, you know, in some societies, in some communities and families, it's it's almost unacceptable for men to express emotion. Men are expected to be stoic, you know, to, to solve problems. And yet when there's emotional pain, we're not talking about physical pain here, we're talking about emotional pain. I think many of us, we don't know how to express it. And yet it doesn't stop the pain. Mm-hmm. The pain is there, but how do you show it? How yeah. do you get help? And that's difficult. So, when you say men, you're referring to gay, straight, not just gay, right? Yep, not okay. just gay men, straight men, maybe trans men as well, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's the socialization that so many of us go through, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And again, it's globally one of the sad, sad things we know about suicide statistics is men are up to two to three times more likely than women to die by suicide. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And in Singapore, if I'm not wrong, uh, they use the binary way of classifying um, uh, suicide stats just based on your uh, the, the sex marker on your NRIC. Mm-hmm. I think the ratio is about two and a half, three um, male deaths to one female death. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. That's, okay. a, that, that's a really startling statistic. Okay, so before we wrap up, could you let people know where they can go for help if someone is uh, struggling with suicidal thoughts? Mm-hmm. So Samaritans of Singapore, they've run a fantastic 24-hour hotline. They've also got email befriending services. They've also recently introduced a text-based service. So read all about them on www.sos.org.sg. So that's Samaritans of Singapore. To find out more about what we do in Uga Chaga, uh, we do not run 24-hour services. Uh, we it's a much smaller outfit, but we do run uh, counselling and support services online and also face-to-face as well. So check us out on ugachaga.lgbt and ugachaga is spelled O-O 
G-A-C-H-A-G-A.LGBT. Cool. And uh, finally, so during the course of your work, I'm sure you've encountered many individuals who have thought of or actually attempted suicide as mm. well. What would you like to say to someone who might be listening right now and mm. contemplating suicide? You might have heard this before and it bears repeating, you are not alone. There's so many of us out here with you, whether it's your friends or family members, professionals, families of choice, family family of birth, family of creation as well. We are there with you and we will be with you when you want us to be there with you. You have every equal right to access the help and support that you need for yourself to get through this. Thank you so much, Yangfa, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in to this episode of Spectrum Podcast. This was a serious one this week, and suicide is often considered a taboo topic. But I truly believe that the more we talk openly about it, the better chance we have at removing the stigma associated with these taboo topics, including mental health, which often prevents people from seeking the help they need. Not to normalize the act, but to recognize that the dangers are real and we can actually do something about it. Now that we're aware of the warning signs, we can better support our loved ones who may be at risk. Thank you once again to Yang Fa, Executive Director of Ugachaka, for sharing his deep insights and perspectives on this topic. From having done this work for almost two decades in a professional and volunteer capacity, as Yang Fa mentioned, Ugachaka is running a suicide prevention workshop for the community tonight at 7:30 p.m. Thursday, 10th September, and hopefully you're hearing this in time to still sign up. This was an important conversation this week, so please share this episode with those you love. It could literally save a life. If you'd like to connect with me on Instagram, find me at Jamie Nonis, J-A-M-I-E-N-O-N-I-S. And be sure to follow Spectrum Podcast as well. Find us at Spectrum, S-P-E-Q-T-R-U-M, Podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Until next time, I pray that you always have the strength and courage to be who you are and know that you are beautiful and loved just the way you are. And remember that no matter what you might be going through, there's always a rainbow around the corner. Stay strong, keep the faith, and take care, my friends.